The body positivity movement started a few years ago. And if you're not sure what that is, if you're of an age where you're not really familiar with that, the body positivity movement is seen in the diversity of models that you'll see in like a Gap ad or a Target ad. And it's showing um, models who don't look like the, I, the type that was always put out as the model ideal back in the 60s or 70s or 80s. You can also hear it in conversations that young women have with each other, encouraging one another, and how they look, what they're wearing, saying, yes, you are good as you're made. And one element of this, or a big portion of this, is a very good change in our cultural moment. It's, it's very good to have that sense that um, the impossible body standards of the models of the past are not what most people can live up to. And that we are all made differently and sufficiently, and there's a beauty in each person. I still think that even the body positivity movement, as good as it is, um, it falls short in a couple of areas. So one area in which it falls short is it's still defining your worth and your identity on the basis of being desirable, especially sexually, it's just redefining that sexual desire. It's saying instead of this being the only ideal, it's all these others. Therefore, you too can be desired. And there's where your worth and identity are to be found. And it still also causes us to look to the cultural standards, different standards, and into the mirror to determine whether we are beautiful, matter, are good, instead of looking to God alone and what he says. I believe Christianity and the Bible, the Bible undergirds a vision of our bodies that is way more compelling and hopeful. On one level, it tells us this, your worth, your worth and your value are because you're made in the image of God, regardless of the body that you're in. Your worth is because you were made, and God made you and has called you infinitely valuable, equally and infinitely valuable and dignified. The Bible also, from the beginning, creating human bodies, declares that all bodies are good. Part of God's plan, not just for now, for you and the life that you're going to live over however many years, but for eternity. And it recasts something like eros, desire, the erotic, and says it's not just about getting sex, but rather our, even our erotic desires are part of God's transcendent gift to point us to a bigger and more hopeful vision for life. And that's the small stuff we're going to look at this morning. So if you were here last week, everything I'm going to say is redundant. Well, the first little bit of it. And if you weren't, Go back and listen if you've got an hour to spare because it went a little bit long. But here's the Christian vision of the body, and I want us to hold on to this and remember it again and again, okay? The Christian vision of the body is first this, the body is you. Now, that's a very simple statement to say, but it actually is contradictory to how we think about ourselves today. The modern cultural view of your identity, which is who are you, who am I, what does it mean to be human, is an internal, psychological, and emotional thing. The internal you is the real you. And your body has nothing to do with it. The body that you have is incidental. And you can change it, shape it, to match the authentic you. The you that's really you that's inside. And your body is incidental to it. But Christianity from the beginning, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, affirms that the body is you. And we know this on one level intuitively because to think about yourself, 
if you're thinking about yourself right now, to experience yourself like these chairs are too small or they're too big. To be yourself is to do so in a body. And it's to do so in your body. Christianity says we understand our true self in our embodied personhood, in the body that God gave you to become the person God made you to be, who you will one day be eternally. So the body is you. The body is also good. And this is not easy for everyone because not everyone feels good about the body that they're in for a number of reasons. Many of you have dealt with that frustration with the body that you're in, the disappointment with the one that you've been given or with how it's turned out over time. And it's not uncommon to hear the phrase that I've never felt at home in the body that I was born with. When somebody experiences that psychologically, a a profound dissonance between the body that they're in and how they feel about it and themselves, it can be incredibly, incredibly painful. It creates a crisis of psychological identity and worth that can lead to despair. Who am I? Why am I even here? What is the body that I'm in? But Christianity makes the claim that your body is good. Because of the fall, because of Genesis 3 that we'll get at in a couple of weeks, because of the fall, your body is broken and has problems. It will physically break down. Gravity will continue to take over no matter how hard you try in the gym. And many of you, many of us, many people in this world today deal with that dysphoria and despair of the dissonance between the body that they're in and the life that they feel like they're meant to live. And it's because we are in a fallen and broken world. Our bodies are going to break down and our hearts and minds don't always align with what we want. But your body is also the body God intended you to have, even in all of its brokenness. And in that sense, it is a gift to be received. The body is you. It is good. And this is one more thing we talked about uh, last week. It's eternal. Now, this is one of those amazing things about Jesus is that he took up a body, right? So we believe Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one has ever seen God. But then, according to John 1, God takes up residence in our neighborhood on Christmas morning in the person of Jesus. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, walks around. There is no greater compliment to the human body than Christmas. But what's even more profound almost than the incarnation is the resurrection and the ascension. And the ascension in particular because it declares this, Jesus, who was embodied, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, took up a human body, died, rose from the dead, and then ascends into heaven in that human body. At the right hand of the throne of God is a human body. And not just any human body, not some amazing model body. It is Jesus' body. And what we know about Jesus is he was a first century Middle Easterner, which meant given that era, he was probably at most 5'1", 5'2", with brown skin. And on top of that, we know from the resurrection and the ascension that he had all the scars from the beating and crucifixion he had gone through a a month and a half earlier. So his back is ripped to shreds with scars, and his wrists and side and feet have holes in them. 
So at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven forever is a five-foot-one brown-skinned Middle Easterner with holes and scars all over his body, and we worship him as God Almighty. It is the declaration in the ascension that every human being is an eternal being. We are created to live forever. As C.S. Lewis wrote, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Every human is an eternal being created to live forever. And what's almost more amazing than that is that we are invited into the process of creating eternal beings. Sex is something that we take very seriously because it is profound. We call it sacred because of what it is claiming to do. In bringing two people together, it is the possibility of new life. When sex births new life, at conception, an eternal being is created. You are being invited to create a new eternal human being, a soul that God intends to live forever, made in his image. God's design for these bodies, as broken and as painful as they usually are, God's design is astounding. Our physical bodies, with our erotic desires, were made for eternity. And in this is what is meant to be human and what it means to be a human being. We go back to really grasp this, to pull out just a second or to remind us why I'm saying all these things, to God's story and our story and how our story is meant to be woven into God's story. But what is God's story and how does our story weave into it, especially in relation to our bodies and maybe sexuality and eternity and this whole thing? Well, we go back to this. Why did God create? God doesn't create because he's bored or because he needs us in the way that we think, like he just needs some people to come around and, and worship him. God creates out of the overflow of his nature. God is a creator God. And what we know from Scripture and the way Christianity is understood, it, God is three persons in one God, one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are in eternal, eternal union with one another a loving, blissful, joyful union of one another, and that births creation, to use that language. It is the loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity that overflows in the joyful overflowing of sharing love. And creation is born, and so is humanity made in the image of God. And we are made in the image of God in order to experience and share in God's eternal union. And we get that right from the beginning in what we had just read in that humanity is made male and female and invited into a lifelong union of love that replicates the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two different persons come together in one union. They become one flesh. And what is birthed is a new creation, a baby made in the image of the mom and dad. 
we are part of the procreation that God is doing. And God's story moves beyond that to what he intends to do for all of history. So we talked about this is that one of the main themes that's woven throughout Scripture that describes what God is doing in history is about a wedding. It's a love story, right? And we get the original love stories in Genesis 2 where Adam and Eve are brought together and the two become one flesh. They leave their family of origin, the two become one flesh, and they are naked and unashamed. It's this beautiful picture of the original wedding of Adam and Eve, the male and female, brought together in order to start all of life. But the whole story ends in Revelation 19 and 21 with another wedding. This time, it's not Adam and Eve. It's Christ and his church. Christ and all of those who put their faith in him. God's story begins in a wedding, ends in a wedding, except the wedding at the end of all time is us as the bride. Whether you are a guy or a girl, if your faith is in Christ, you are the bride of Christ. And the declaration is God wants to marry you. God is madly in love with you. God wants to commit himself to you and give himself to you fully. God's spousal love for us is the heart of what God has to say to us in history. We see this as a theme that's woven throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 54, there's this beautiful declaration and I'm not going to read all of it, but you could read all of it, where God says to Israel, it says this, the, 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 the prophet writes, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Your maker is your husband. God wants us to see him as our husband as the one who loves us and is seeking after us. The whole of the prophet of Hosea, the whole prophet Hosea book, is about Hosea the prophet enacting God's love for Israel by taking on a wife who rejects him, who is unfaithful. And it's God saying, I am the faithful husband who will wait and, and seek after you and bring you back again and again and again. I love you, and I want to redeem you again and again, just as Hosea does with his unfaithful wife. And it's God's declaration to us that he loves us in the midst of our unfaithfulness and brokenness. He is absolutely devoted and committed to us. And that's an analogy that's also a part of undergirding or kind of behind the Song of Solomon. That beautiful poetry, that erotic poetry of a husband and a wife and their sexual love for one another. But as many theologians have pointed out through the years, it's also pointing up to what God desires for each of us. He loves us. He is passionate about us as much as any husband and wife could be. Far more. He deeply, deeply, deeply loves us. And that's where we're meant to understand marriage as a penultimate replication of what God's love for us is about. We see this in Ephesians 5, which I had us read. And unfortunately, for those of you who want me to get involved in it deeply, I'm not going to today. <laughs> I'm not skirting the issue. I'm just saying that you need to understand the full context so that you can receive what God is calling you to. 
And often we get hung up with our modern ears to not be able to hear what God is inviting us into. What is he inviting us into? Well, in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What I want you to notice is that both what the wife is called to and what the husband is called to is built off of a reference to the same thing. They're both built off of a reference to the Lord. Basically, the wives are supposed to deal with their husbands as if they're married to Jesus. And husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as Jesus loves you. Would Jesus say that to your wife? Treat her that way? Demand that of her? Ignore her that way? Walk away from her that way? What would Jesus do? Do that. If you were married to Jesus, how would you respond to him? Go ahead, do that, wives. Be the one who is relating to Jesus or living out Jesus. That's all. It's a much harder calling, but also one we naturally would want to do if our hunger and desire is for God. But what I want to get at in here is how Paul is pointing us to the Lord. He's pointing us to Christ. He's pointing us to what God has done because he sees, even in a marriage, something that is farther beyond anything that a marriage is about. We see him beginning to overflow, as Paul sometimes does, and especially in Ephesians. He starts in on a sentence, and then he has these long run-ons where he doesn't know where he's going because he's overflowing in praise. He's like a poet who can't stop the words coming out. And we see this in Ephesians 5. It's one of the several times in Ephesians where he does this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. And then he keeps going. And we read in verse 29 to 32, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He catches himself at the end. He's like, oh, wait, I'm losing them. What am I talking about again? Husbands and wives? No, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And husbands and wives, but Christ and the church. There's a word in here, in verse 32, it says, this mystery is profound. What mystery is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about a word, mystery, that he uses as a technical theological term. He uses it regularly, and in Ephesians, he uses it a lot. One way to sum up the word mystery, the way that it's used in the New Testament, especially by Paul, is that it is the hidden plan of God, the hidden will of God in all of history. And he uses this term mystery. It's something we long to look into that we can't fully understand. And yet, it's being revealed in Christ and as Paul is saying here, it's being revealed in our bodies and in our relationships. And what is that plan? Well, we get it at the very beginning of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, Paul, again, using one of these run-on sentences where he begins to praise God and all that he's done, can't slow himself down. And he says, making known to us the mystery of his will. There's the word again which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to, here's what the mystery is about, 
to unite all things in him. A little later on, another one of these long run-on sentences where he begins praising God, he says, Christ is the head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's talking about Christ and the church again. He ascended that he might fill all things. That's why Christ is at the right hand of God. Therefore, in chapter 5, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. God's intention is to unite all things in him, to fill all things with him. The aim of creation, the aim of our lives eternally, is God's spousal love to us, to be united with us, to fill us with the fullness of his life, his divinity, and his glory forever. God's mystery, Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, is revealed in our bodies. You know, the purpose of life is to love God and love others as God loves us. As the theologians talk about God's love, it is self-donation. It is a total giving of oneself. We are made to give ourselves wholly to God and to others. And it's written into our physical bodies. As Christopher West wrote, the purpose of life is to love as God loves, and this is what your body as a man or woman calls you to do. A man's body is complete in all of the systems but one. A woman's body is complete in all of the systems but one. And that system is the reproductive system. It only functions in union with one another. We are created male and female in the image of God. Every one of us is fully made in the image of God. And yet, every male, every male, every cell in every male has 46 chromosomes, except for one. Every cell in a female has 46 chromosomes, except for one. That one is the sperm cell and the ovum, which only have 23. But when they come together, a new person is born. They complete one another, and new life is formed. It's how we got here. I think it's how you got here. Sex is a sacrament. A sacrament is a sign pointing to something greater. It is not the thing itself. It is something pointing to something greater. We make sex ultimate, not sacramental. But it is pointing to God's plan from creation to consummation to unite all things in himself, to be united with us, to love us eternally, fully, and fill us completely. And in our bodies, when a male and a female are brought together in lifelong union, the husband gives himself to his wife in total self-giving, and she receives him, and new life is birthed. Sex is meant only to be a sacramental act, a covenant renewal ceremony. 
It's meant to point back to the union of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit birthing creation. It's meant to reenact one's own wedding. That's what a sacrament does. It reenacts something. It's what we do with the Lord's Supper, with all of its promises to us in the gospel. You reenact your wedding with all the promises you made to one another, and it points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in this sense, sex is not ultimate. You don't have to have it to fulfill God's purposes or to be a part of God's eternal purposes. But here we are in our bodies, and we are strongly erotic creatures. And it seems like God made us that way. Why? So in The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the four different types of love using Greek words, and he's pulling from Scripture and some other things. The four types of love are storge, philia, eros, and agape, right? And storge is like love of a puppy or a thing that you really, uh, kind of empathy and compassion and things you want to hug and hold on to. Philia is brotherly, sisterly love, Philadelphia, maybe. Um, Eros is erotic, sexual and romantic love, and agape is that free love of God. And we have hung on to agape for a long time. But a number of writers, scholars, theologians would say we're missing out on one element that is clearly woven throughout Scripture, and that is eros, which we often define as sexual and romantic, but actually more properly defined is your desires. We all have desires, loves and longings. In fact, James K. Smith, the philosopher and theologian, wrote that we are primarily desiring creatures. That's what makes us us as human beings different from even the animals. And he says, we're not what we think we are. We think we're thinking beings that are figuring it all out by thinking it out. And this is who I am. This is what life's about. He says, you're not a thinking person. You're a desiring creature. This is what he writes. What if instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers. As lovers, as desiring creatures, our primary orientation to the world is visceral, not cerebral. We are desiring creatures, not thinking creatures. Yes, you're thinking, but you're led by your stomach more than your brain, by your emotions more than your reasons more than you think. We are driven by our loves and our hungers. God made us that way too. He made us erotic beings, desiring creatures. Why? Because eros is the language of God's love for us. I have made you, and I want to be united with you forever. Your maker is your husband. We are erotic creatures, and those desires were given to us from the very beginning, before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that we also had read earlier, it says that God creates the garden, and in it he plants trees. They were pleasant for the sight and good for food. Think about that. That is a profound thing. My dog is a brilliant dog by standards of dumb dogs. But he's not walking around going like, oh, those flowers really came out nice today. Look at the sunset. It's beautiful. Nor is he thinking about the food like, ooh, the pour was nice today. Like those bits were just a little better. He, he toasted them just right. But we do. 
We see beauty and we're blown away. We hunger for food and when we taste something that's done in a way we've never had before, we have to tell somebody else about it. We are desiring creatures who are put in a garden of beauty, of taste. And God said, eat, enjoy, fill your erotic, actually, desires. Christopher West says, yes. Erotic desire is in God's original plan. It enabled man and woman to see their bodies as a sign that pointed to the mystery of God. Eros, in other words, led very naturally and readily from the beauty of the creature to the beauty of the creator, from the sign to worship of the God that their bodies signified. In other words, your desires, your tastes, your hungers are meant to be satisfied and cause you to worship. Drinking that drink, eating that food, enjoying that pleasure should cause you to worship God and long for eternity that the thing you're enjoying is just a sign and sacrament to. And that's why when Adam makes his declaration about the woman that God had given him, it was not just a, oh great, now functionally we can have some sex. He overflows in praise and it's actually uniting him to God who created him. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Praise God. They became one flesh and they were naked and unashamed, had nothing to hide. It was a worship of God in that process. But we, we don't live in that Genesis 2 world, do we? Our bodies reveal God's plan and our desires too, but we also do not live in that Genesis 2 world. If our bodies, male and female, sex itself, even our erotic nature, our desiring sides, was meant to point us to God's plan, cause us to worship God and anticipate eternity, if that was how God made us, designed us, and if, hypothetically, there was an enemy who despised God and didn't want us to worship him or anticipate heaven, what might he attack most fully? What might he distort most completely? Where do we see God's design and intention completely thrown out? Not just in our modern world, but throughout all of history. Abused, misused, feared, consumed in a way that becomes worship itself. It would be right there in our bodies and sex and gender our eros. We live in a Genesis 3 world and all of us are broken. All of us are broken sexually. My desires are broken and so are yours. Biologically, genetically, my assumption is I'm fallen and that includes my sexuality. I have disordered loves. And they're disordered to serve me, not to worship God. All of us are desiring creatures who desire creatures rather than the creator. And we live in an expressive individualistic world. 
The modern expressive individualist says, we are sexual beings who must throw off the constraints of culture and tradition, religion, what everyone else says, because the only way to be happy is to be yourself. And sexual expression is, is key to selfhood. But that's not what sex and your body are for. That's not where you find who you are. As Tim Keller summed, the purpose of sex is not personal self-expression to be happy, but personal self-donation to imitate God as a witness to the gospel. Sex is good as God designed it. The mystery of God's plan for all of history is revealed in our very bodies. But sex is not ultimate. You do not need it to be complete. We need to give it to God, whether we're married or single. We can give our sexuality in marriage, pointing us to eternity. We can give our sexuality to the Lord in singleness and awaiting eternity. Either way, it is not the end, the ultimate, or the definer of who you are. But we are erotic creatures. We are created for infinite joy and pleasure. Do you know that? You are made to enjoy life to the full. And not just this life, but to enjoy life infinitely. Well, because you're made for an eternity in which you will enjoy life to the full infinitely. Pleasure infinitely. Our erotic desires as a result of that are limitless. It's why if you find something good, you want more of it, and you actually can't get enough of it. But no spouse, no cosmic sexual experience, no screen images can fill the depth of our longing. Indeed, if we consider, C.S. Lewis says in that famous set of lines that I always butcher, so I'm just going to read it. If we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, I began last week talking about a friend of mine in a conversation that we had that was very hard about eight or nine years ago. And his words to me, don't you want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? The mystery of God's plan for the fullness of time is that sex and marriage are not essential to being happy, to being the true you. Only God is. God created us to share in his divinity. He gives himself to us and intends one day as the groom to fill us, his bride, with the fullness of his life and love. And that means that our bodies right now, male and female, are God's invitation. God's invitation inscribed in the bodies he gave us. 
to the fullness of his infinite love for us, to what he intends to do and how he intends to make us his own. Let's pray. God, we live in a world that is so confused about body and sex, the erotic, these things that we feel guilt about and know we should, and yet you designed us. These bodies are good. Reorient, conform our desires, our hungers towards you. May we lay them down before you. Shape us and prepare our hearts to receive the fullness of him who died for us. Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.